If you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles with me. Let's look together at the book of Genesis, in chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. So we near the end of our verse-by-verse study of this first and foundational and glorious book of the Bible. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 12 of Genesis 49. And as we come to this passage, let me remind you of the context. We're in the room of a dying man. Jacob is here breathing his last breaths. We've seen that he is sick and that these are his last words to his 12 sons gathered around him. God has given to Jacob at least a glimpse of the future. What's ahead for his sons? What's ahead for their descendants? And he is now speaking prophetically over each son. And our time this morning is going to be spent looking at the prophecy that he gives to his fourth son, Judah. Judah was the fourth son of Jacob's first wife, Leah. And each time that Leah gave birth to a son, she gave that son a name that indicated her great desire for her husband Jacob to love her more. Leah knew that she was not her husband's favorite. Jacob had loved Rachel from the very beginning, and he had been tricked into taking Leah as his wife. And so when she gave birth to her firstborn son, she named him Reuben, which literally means, look, a son. And Leah said, the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. But Jacob's love for Leah did not increase. Then she had a second son, and she said, The Lord has heard that I am hated. He has given me this son also. And and so she named that son Simeon, which means heard. And yet there is, again, no record that Jacob showed any greater love towards her. And so she gave birth to a third son. And she named him Levi, which sounds like the word for attached. And Leah said, now, this time, my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And yet again, Jacob's love for her did not change. And so when this fourth son came, no longer did Leah give him a name reflecting her deep desire to be loved by her husband. No, this time she took her peace in God. She said, this time I will praise the Lord. And she gave gave this son the name Judah, which is a a play on the Hebrew word. It, It sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. Now Jacob grew up, I'm sorry, Judah grew up as a son of Leah. So he was not the firstborn, That privilege, until it was lost, belonged to Reuben. He was also not one of the special sons in the eyes of his father. All the boys knew that Joseph and and Benjamin were especially loved by Jacob. When the family came towards danger, 
when they were approaching Uncle Esau and they didn't know whether he might attack them or do them harm, Jacob sent Judah and his brothers ahead of Joseph and his, life, and his wife Rachel. In other words, Judah grew up in a home where favoritism was evident and clear and he was not one of the favorites. And so in Genesis 37, we're not surprised to find that he is one of those who hates his brother, Joseph. He hates Joseph's prophetic dreams of grandeur. He's envious of his younger brother, envious that Joseph has been placed above him in the family order and has the place of highest affection in his father's heart. Judah was a man who struggled with greed. In fact, it was, Joseph, it was Judah who suggested to his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. And it wasn't that he was trying to spare Joseph's life. Rather, he was trying to make a buck off of his brother. In Genesis 38, we saw Judah's struggle with lust. We saw him with a woman that he believed to be a prostitute. We found that he was a man unfaithful to his promises. Judah was a man whose word you could not trust. But at the very end of chapter 38, we began to see a change in this man Judah. At the end of that chapter, he was humbled. He was made aware of his own sin. And over the following chapters, we see him beginning to be troubled. God bringing to bear on his conscience the wickedness of his deeds, especially his deeds towards Joseph. By Genesis 43, we see Judah as the leader of the brothers who are in Canaan. We see that it is Judah who steps forward to, to speak for all the brothers to his father. And it is Judah who steps forward to speak to Joseph in Egypt. We begin to see evidences of grace in Judah's life. We, we see courage. We see a willingness to sacrifice for others. Judah, by this point of Genesis, is a very different man than he used to be. And now in these verses, we learn that his tribe will be the royal tribe. From Judah will come kings. But Judah's prophecy contains something even greater than that. It is revealed here in prophetic form that the Messiah himself is going to come from Judah. That one first spoken of in Genesis 3 verse 15, the, the great serpent slayer that was promised to Adam and Eve, the one that God's remnant has been waiting for. And, and we learned in Genesis 12, he's going to come from the family of Abraham. And we learn later, he's going to come from the family of Isaac. And we learn later, he's going to come from the family of Jacob. And, and now we learn it's going to be through Judah's line that this Messiah is going to come. You see, what we read about in these verses concerning Judah, it does come to pass partially in his tribe, in the pages of the Old Testament. But really, these verses come to pass truthfully and fully in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate Judahite being described in these five verses. Revelation 5 speaks of the ascended Jesus now in heaven 
And God the Father has this scroll. And this scroll contains all of God's purposes for the history of the world. It contains all of His purposes for the plan of redemption. But the scroll was sealed up with many seals. And there's no one that can be found to open up the scroll and bring these purposes to pass. And John looks and we're told that he weeps. And then comes Revelation 5, verse 5, where we read this, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, look, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. You see, Jesus is the Lion King described in this first book of the Bible in these verses and described in the last book of the Bible in Revelation 5. And so our outline this morning is this. We're going to look at these five prophetic verses and from them I want to give you seven truths spoken here about our Lord Jesus Christ. These are seven truths prophesied in five verses which have now come true and are coming true in the person of Jesus Christ sitting at the very right hand of God reigning over all things. And since I'm going to show you seven of them, I can't spend a lot of time on any of them. And so I'm only going to be able to give you a taste of each one. And let me just suggest that this is one of those passages where Maybe one day we'll do a whole seven-sermon series on it, but till then, this is the kind of passage that you can meditate on for hours, and glory is there. So I I hate it when I say we're going to put our toes into the shallow end and not go deep, because I always want us to go deep, but we can't live in Genesis forever, can we? And so so we're going to just touch the surface this morning. So truth number one from these verses is that Christ's brothers Praise him. So let's read verse 8. Let's read verse 8. Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. So you see this first truth there in those opening words. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Notice that Jacob is playing on the name of Judah, right? Judah's name means praise. And so he says, praise, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Uh, Certainly, the tribe of Judah would become the most noble and glorious of all the 12 tribes. It was from Judah that King David would come. Bethlehem, the little hometown of great kings, was a Judahite town. Jerusalem would be located in Judah. The temple with the Holy of Holies, the special presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant would be found in the tribe of Judah. But the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is in Christ. It is His brothers that will praise Him. Now wait a minute, Justin. What do you mean by by brothers? Does Jesus have brothers? I mean, doesn't doesn't the Bible say He's the only begotten Son of the Father? Well, that's true. But in an earthly sense, Jesus did have earthly half-siblings. We just read about them in our reading from from John 7, providentially. Uh, Joseph and Mary, 
did have children, two of whom wrote books that are in the New Testament, James and Jude. But there is another deeper sense in which Jesus absolutely has brothers who praise him. Romans 8 says that we who are Christians have received the adoption as sons so that we are now heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. By the way, isn't that amazing? He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. In fact, the Hebrew writer looks at Psalm 22, verse 22, and tells us that that verse is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that verse, Jesus says to His Father, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In Matthew 12, 49-50, we read that Jesus stretched out His hands towards His disciples. And He said to them, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. And perhaps clearest of all, we'll study it as we get into Romans 8 later this year. Romans 8, 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Dear Christian, if you are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says that Jesus has now become your older brother. You've been adopted into His family. The very Son of God is your big brother. We are being made like Him. On the day we enter heaven, we will share Christ's image. We will share Christ's likeness. On the day we enter heaven, we will have the family features. And as the firstborn in the Old Testament was usually the one of preeminence and honor, so it is with Jesus Christ. His brothers and sisters will praise Him. We've been adopted. We are adopted sons of the Father. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. We've been brought into the family, but we love and praise our elder brother. Why did we gather here today? What have we come here to do? Yes, Jesus is our brother, and He's also our Lord, and we love that that is equally true, and we love to praise Him. He is our King, and yet, by the Spirit of God, He is family. Jesus is the best of what an elder brother can be. He loves us. He protects us. He provides for us. Older siblings in this room, Jesus is a model for you of what an older sibling ought to be. Be a protector. Be a teacher. Be an example for your younger brothers and sisters as Christ is for us. And we praise Him. Christ's brothers praise Him. That's truth number one. Truth number two about Jesus here is that Christ's hand is on the neck of His enemies. So that's the second statement in verse 8. Do you see it? The second statement in verse 8. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. This is a statement about victory. The tribe of Judah 
would be one that was blessed by God with military power, with victory in war. By God's might, it would often be the case that the tribe of Judah would prevail even against enemies far greater than she. Jesus is the great Judahite who conquers every enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The devil, the world, the flesh, even death itself. All of these enemies are defeated by Christ. He has already issued the fatal blow. The decisive battle has already been fought. Jesus' hand is already on the neck of these, His enemies, our enemies. Their end is near. Dear Christian, this is meant to, to encourage us. We should take heart. Are you struggling in your battle against the forces of darkness? Well, be encouraged. Because of Jesus, Romans 16.20 is true for you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath of your feet. There will come a day when Satan and his forces will bother you no longer. Are you struggling against that constant pool of worldliness? Well, because of Christ, 1 John 5.4 is true of you. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You are an overcomer in Christ. Are you struggling against the temptations of your own flesh because of Jesus? Galatians 5.24 is true for you. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, church, Christ has already issued the fatal blow to every true enemy of your soul. And so while right now Satan is still dangerous, the world is still dangerous, your flesh is still dangerous, guess what? They're going down. They will lie at your feet. You are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. You will have victory through faith in Jesus. It is guaranteed to you because you are now won by faith with Him who holds their necks in His hands. And not to be too graphic, but He's going to break it. And they're going to die. And Satan is going to be cast into the place of utter darkness. And this world with all of its brokenness is going to be renewed in fire and made new. And all of that flesh that is in you that seeks to pull you away from Christ is being dealt with by the Spirit of God. And there is going to be a day when you will dwell with your Savior forever in heaven and Satan and the world and your flesh will be no longer a part of your life. Amen. Is that not exciting? Truth number three about the Lord Jesus Christ in these verses is that His brothers bow down before Him. This is the last statement of verse 8. The last statement of verse 8. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. <clears throat> We've already seen that, that Christ's brothers praise Him, but, but there's something different about the act of, of bowing down. <clears throat> you can praise someone and yet still not submit to them. 
The picture that Jacob is presenting here for Judah is that all of the other tribes are going to bow down to the tribe of Judah. All of the other tribes are going to submit to the leadership of Judah. They are going to humble themselves before Judah. And this especially came true through the kings of Judah, particularly King David. But this is ultimately true in Jesus Christ. Not only do we, who are His brothers by grace, not only do we praise Him, but we bow before Him. The Holy Spirit of God has changed us so that now it is our delight to submit ourselves to Him. Church, what does it mean to be a Christian? To be a Christian is to be one who bows to Jesus, one who submits to Jesus, one who says, I am going to be a disciple of Jesus and sit at the feet of Jesus and He's going to speak to me and I'm going to believe what He says and I'm going to trust what He says and I'm going to obey what He says. That's what it means to be a Christian. There are all these headlines this week about how the U.S. military was now going to issue court-martials and even prison time to U.S. soldiers who sought to evangelize other soldiers. By the end of the week, they pulled back on that a little bit. But it seemed there at the beginning of the week that the position of the U.S. military was that it's okay to be a Christian soldier as long as you don't try and win other people to your faith. But dear friends, is there such a thing as a Christian who doesn't want others to come and be a part of their faith? Isn't a Christian someone who bows to Jesus? Isn't a Christian someone who submits to Jesus' teaching? Someone who humbles their heart before Jesus and says, Jesus, you instruct me in how to live. And part of what Jesus says is, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be full. Luke 14.23 So if being a Christian is someone who bows to Jesus and Jesus says, compel people to come into my house. Can you be a Christian and not be a person who cares about evangelism? Christians trust Jesus enough to do what He says. And this verse prophesied that Christ's brothers would bow down before Him, submit to Him. Truth number four. Truth number four. Christ is as a lion in His majesty, His might, in his ferocity. Christ is as a lion in his majesty, his might, and his ferocity. So this is verse 9. If you want to look at verse 9 with me. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The lion, of course, is the king of the jungle. And throughout the history of the world, the lion has been a symbol of majesty and of might and of ferocity. The lion is one of the largest carnivores, able to attack and kill both other animals and people. Most of the time, a lion lies comfortably, looking over its territory, watching over its kingdom. But when the lion decides to attack, it arises and it is quick and it is ferocious. 
A lion's mane has the appearance of a crown so that the lion has been used as a symbol of royalty since the beginning of man. Judah is described here as a lion's cub, that is a lion that has come forth from a lion. And when applied to Judah himself, this would mean his dad, Jacob, Israel, is the father lion. But this verse makes so much more sense when it is seen that it really refers to the great Judahite, Jesus Christ. Jesus is a lion begotten from the father who himself can be described as the great king over all. Jacob gives us this picture of a lion leaving its prey. In other words, the kill has already taken place. The feasting on the body of the prey has already taken place. The lion is is full on the meat of its victim and it is now turning away. Who is there to stand against him? Who is there to seek revenge? This lion now stoops and crouches down. It lies again in its place of power. Who will rouse him? Who will dare challenge the king of the jungle? Mount Hermon, Jesus Christ is a meek and tender shepherd. And we thank God that that is true. We thank God that we can say of our Lord Jesus, He is a lamb. But woe to us if we forget that He is also a lion. Woe to us if we forget His might and strength, that He is the Lord of lords, that He is the King of kings, that He rules over this world. His majesty, lest we forget it, will be clearly seen on the day He returns. None of this secret rapture stuff where Jesus comes back and nobody knows it and they're wondering and sound. what happened? I don't know what happened. No, the trumpet will sound. Every eye will see Him on that day. He will be surrounded by myriads of angels. The dead will rise. Every knee will bow before Him. The majesty of Jesus will no longer be in dispute. Everyone will see it. In His just and yet ferocious might, the Lord Jesus will return and He will cast everyone who still remains a hater of God into that place of His wrath, that place called hell. I want to read to you just a little portion of Revelation 19 which describes Christ's second coming This passage particularly emphasizes how he is going to pounce on the enemies of God and bring them to judgment. Dear church, listen to these words and don't ever speak flippantly about the Lord Jesus Christ again. John says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is not the little baby in a manger, church. He was the baby in a manger. But he is exalted. He is ascended. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Both authority to save, praise God, authority to save. But lest we forget it, also authority to judge. John continues, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead. He said, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Ready for lunch? He is a lion. He is a lamb. But he is a lion. Be careful how you speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. Truth number five. Christ has come into his rightful place of dominion. Christ has come into his rightful place of dominion. This is verse 10, and I'm just going to be up front with you. Verse 10 is probably the most difficult verse in the entire book of Genesis to translate. Everybody disagrees on exactly what verse 10 is trying to say. The first two lines of verse 10 are pretty clear. Let's let's read it again. Uh, Verse 10 Uh, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's pretty clear. A scepter. That's a king's scepter. That's a a symbol of royalty and authority. And that's not going to depart from Judah. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So those two lines are are, are pretty clear, right? Uh, God told David his kingly line is going to last forever. This has come true in Jesus, the king descended from Judah, who will be king over all forever. But it's that next statement that's pretty pretty tricky. ESV says, until tribute comes to him. Uh, Some think, and some translations translate it this way, that that it should be till Shiloh comes. Uh, There's a lot of debate about what exactly Shiloh might mean. There are others that think that this Hebrew word needs to be slightly amended so that it would say, until he comes to whom it belongs. And they think that because Ezekiel in his book uses that exact phrase. This would mean that the kings of Judah, like David and Solomon, would reign until the day that he comes to whom the throne rightfully belongs, namely King Jesus Christ. The only problem I see with that is that they didn't reign until Jesus came. They 
were eventually overthrown. The other possible translation, and the one that the ESV chooses, and it's, it's the one I prefer, I think, is until tribute comes. This would mean that Judah's tribe would reign in the person of Jesus Christ until the day all worship and honor and glory is given to him. Until the day that the entire earth is filled with his glory, bringing tribute, bringing worship, bringing honor to him. But why does it say until that day? What's going to happen at that day when all worship is given to King Jesus? Well, I think this is foreshadowing 1 Corinthians 15, which speaks of Jesus ruling until the day that every enemy is put underneath of his feet and all the peoples have come to submission to him. And then we're told that on that day, Jesus will give the kingdom and even himself to his father, that his father might be all in all forever and ever. Whichever translation you you choose, the point is this. All the way back in Genesis, we have a prophecy of a king coming from the tribe of Judah who will rule unlike any other king that has ever come before him. And today, through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, Christ has done what Adam and no other human being ever did. Jesus obeyed perfectly. Jesus fulfilled God's covenant of works. Jesus completely obeyed God in all perfection. And therefore, He has been given the blessing of all authority over all the world. Jesus already had all authority as the Son of God. But Jesus now has all authority as exalted man. Blameless, spotless, perfect, godly man. He is the second Adam. He is our elder brother. And he is the ruler over all things. Number six. Truth number six. Christ has the obedience of the peoples. This is the end of verse 10. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This was fulfilled for the tribe of Judah. As kings like David sat on the throne and all the other tribes obeyed him. And so you have the obedience of the tribes unto King David. But come on, the word here is peoples. The word here is the nations, the the ethno-linguistic people groups. All the people in the world are going to obey this, this king. And only that can be said of Jesus Christ. Even now, the peoples of the world are being reached with the gospel. They are hearing of Christ crucified. They are seeing His glory. Their hearts are being subdued by a glimpse of the love of God for them given in Christ so that their hearts are being won to Jesus, so that they obey Jesus, not out out of force, but out of desire. They obey Jesus out of, He loves me and I trust Him and He's wiser than me and He loves me more than I love myself. Of course I'm going to obey Him. One day He's going to come back and all who remain in disobedience will be forever cast away. And a new heavens and a new earth will be established in which every single citizen of the kingdom, every single person walking the new earth will live in happy obedience the great king from the tribe of Judah. Well, finally, truth number seven. Christ is immensely rich in blessings. Christ is immensely rich in blessings. So this is verses 11 and 12. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture 
in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. The picture here, church, is of absolutely unbelievable, incredible wealth. No one ties their foal or donkey next to their choicest vines. Why not? Because the donkey eats the grapes. <laughs> right? You don't feed your caviar to your pet hamster. That's the picture here. You only do that if you have lots of caviar. Right? You only put your donkey next to your choicest grapes if you have lots of choicest grapes. The idea here was that the tribe of Judah would be so blessed by God that it would be overflowing in fine things. No shortage of wine in this tribe. And that is true. Really only eternally true in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the apple of the Father's eye. Jesus is the one whom God has taken all of His love, all of His blessing, and He's just poured it out on His Son whom He loves. This is My Son with whom I am well pleased. He's put all blessing into Jesus Christ. And when we trust Jesus, when we are united to Jesus by faith, all of those blessings become ours. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so that it's as if Jesus is this tremendous well and God has just taken all of his great love and blessing he's just poured it all into Christ and now when we become one with Christ we get to drink from that well day in and day out and live in the blessings of God in the picture here the wine is so abundant that people are washing their clothes in it it's almost like instead of rivers of water, there just runs through this country rivers of wine. It's no accident, by the way, that Jesus' first miracle was water into wine. John said it's a sign. And it's a sign pointing back to a prophetic word given in Genesis 49, verse 11. Wine throughout the picture, throughout the Bible, is a picture of joy. Wine throughout the Bible is a picture of gladness. So in Christ is immense joy. You can't help but wonder if there's a picture of the gospel being foreshadowed. And that line which says that his vesture, his clothes are washed in the blood of grapes. That last line speaks of his eyes being darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, in one sense, that's just a picture of, of beauty, a picture of glory. But Old Testament commentaries, the scholars say it's more than that. They say it's what's called a merism. Everybody say merism. Say it again. Merism. Say it one more time. Merism. Don't they say if you say a word three times, it's yours for life? So now you know the word merism. Now let me tell you what it means. Merism, right, is a statement of two extremes that includes everything in the middle. And so when it says that his eyes are dark as wine, it's a picture of, of, of extreme dark over here. His teeth are white as milk. Extreme light over here. It means Jesus is all the blessings on this side and all the blessings on that side and every blessing that could possibly be in between. Meaning, according to the Old Testament scholars, this is a statement that all blessing in the entire world, in the entire universe, all blessing you could ever imagine has been given to Christ. And it's all found in Christ. And it can't be found anywhere else so how do we close dear friends just see the glory of christ 
See the great Lion King, the Son of God, the glorified, perfect man sitting on the throne, all authority and power, His hand on the neck of His enemies, your enemies if you're a Christian. And He will take your enemies and He will pounce on them and they, they've already been fatally wounded and they will be utterly and truthfully destroyed. This is the King who is our brother and we bow to Him, we submit to Him, we are happy to praise Him. Why? Because He is full of immense blessing and joy and He freely pours it out on all of us forever and ever. Dear friends, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Know Him more through His Word. Know Him more through prayer. Trust Him. Obey Him. And in this way, be eternally blessed. Amen. Let's pray.